0: Chapter 6. The Reading Which is Blessed The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Revelation 1, 1 1-3 We live in troubled and dangerous times. It has been a long time since there have been as many ideas and events in our world causing fear and anxiety as there are today. We are always apt to exaggerate the importance of events that happen in our own day. I do not forget that but I cannot retract what I have just written. I look around me at the things now going on in the church and in the world. I look ahead to what could be our future. And as I look, I feel that I am justified in speaking of our times as troubled and dangerous. I appeal to the judgment of all who observe the history of their own times. Is there not a cause? There are three heavy judgments which God can send on a nation. The sword, the pestilence, and the famine. All three of these have fallen heavily upon our country within the last few years. The Irish famine, the Russian war, the cholera, and the cattle plague have left marks on this country which cannot be erased. Surely these signs of the times deserve special notice. They should make us say with Habakkuk, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me. Habakkuk 2.1. They should make us cry with Daniel, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Daniel 12.8. But one thing, in any event, is clear, and that is the duty of Christians to search more diligently than ever the prophetic scriptures. Don't be like the Jews at the first advent, who were blind to the hand of God and the fulfillment of His purposes in all that was going on in the world. Let us instead remember that the word of prophecy is given to be, A light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise. Second Peter 1.19. Let us walk in that light. Let us search What or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them, the prophets, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. 1 Peter 1.11. Let us compare prophecies fulfilled with prophecies unfulfilled, and attempt to make one illustrate the other. Let us strive, above all, to obtain clear views of the things we should be expecting, both in the church and the world, before the end comes, and time will be no more. With such feelings, I now invite you to consider the verses of Scripture quoted at the beginning of this chapter. Those verses are the preface or opening words of the book of Revelation. May the blessing which is specially promised to the readers and hearers of that book be with all of you. There are three points to which I desire to call your attention. One, the general character of the book of Revelation. Two, the arguments commonly used to deter men from studying the book of Revelation. And three, useful lessons that the book of Revelation teaches. The general character of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation differs widely from any other book of the Old or New Testament. In many respects, it is thoroughly unlike the rest of the Bible. There is a solemn and majestic peculiarity about it. It stands alone. It is peculiar in the dignity with which it begins. The very first verse prepares the reader for something extraordinary for a book even more directly from God, if possible, than one written under the plenary inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It reads, The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass, and He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. It is peculiar in the subject matter it contains. It contains less doctrinal and practical Christianity in proportion to its length than any other book of the New Testament. With few exceptions, its pages are filled with prophecies. These prophecies are of the widest range, extending, it seems to me, from the time of John to the very end of the world. They embrace a vast number of events that are spread over the whole times of the Gentiles. Luke twenty-one twenty-four and cover the mighty interval between the destruction of the first Jerusalem and the descent of the new Jerusalem from heaven. And these prophecies are of universal importance to all mankind, having reference not only to the condition and prospects of the believing church, but also of the unconverted world. It is peculiar in the style and dress in which its subject matter is clothed. With the exception of the second and third chapters, the greater part of the book is composed of visions which the Apostle John saw in the Spirit. In these visions, the vast range of the church's history was revealed to him under emblems, figures, allegories, symbols, and representations. The meaning of the great majority of these symbols and emblems is not explained. The general characteristics of these visions are greatly alike. All are marked by a vastness, a grandeur, a majesty, a life, a force, a boldness, and a sublimity entirely unparalleled in any human writings. The door opening in heaven, the voice like a trumpet speaking, the crystal-like sea of glass, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven files, the four angels holding the four winds, The mighty angel whose right foot is on the sea and his left foot on the earth, and who has a face like the sun. The woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. The great red dragon who has seven heads and ten horns. The beast rising out of the sea. The mighty earthquake. The destruction of Babylon. The summoning of the fowls of heaven to the supper of the great God. The binding of Satan. The great white throne the last judgment, the descent of the new Jerusalem from heaven, the description of the glorious city. Who can read such things without being struck by them? Who can study them and not come to the conclusion that this is written with the finger of God? This is the general character of the book of Revelation, and of this book which you are emphatically told it is blessed to read. I will offer just two general remarks on the symbolic style in which the book of Revelation is composed, and then move on. The first is that you must not regard the use of symbolic language as entirely peculiar to the book of Revelation. You will find it in other parts of Scripture. The very emblems and figures of the Apocalypse, another name for the book of Revelation, whose meaning seems so obscure, are often employed by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You read, for example, of four living creatures in the fourth chapter of Revelation. You also read of four in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1.5. You read of horses in the vision of the four first seals. You read of horses also in the vision of Zechariah, Zechariah 6.2-3. You read of a sealed group in the seventh chapter. You read also of a sealed and marked people in the vision of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 9. You read of a plague of locusts under the fifth trumpet. You read of locusts also in the prophecy of Joel, Joel 2. You read of John eating the little book in the tenth chapter. You read also of Ezekiel eating the roll in his vision, Ezekiel 3. You read of olive trees and candlesticks in the vision of the two witnesses. You read of the same emblems in the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 4. In the thirteenth chapter, you read of a beast having seven heads and ten horns. You read of a similar beast in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7. You read of a wondrous celestial city in the twenty-first chapter of Revelation. And you have the description of a city scarcely less mysterious, though different, at the end of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 40 to 48. These things are worthy of comment. They show us that we must not stumble on the symbols of revelation as if they were altogether a new and strange thing. We must remember they are used in the Old Testament as well as here, though far more sparingly, in communicating the mind of God to man. The peculiarity of the apocalypse is not so much the use of symbols and emblems as the profuse abundance of them. My other remark is that a symbolic style of composition will always seem stranger to us than it does to Eastern nations. Figures, parables, illustrations, and similitudes are infinitely better known in the countries around the Holy Land than they are in the West. The hieroglyphic inscriptions, for example, which abound in Egypt and elsewhere in the East, are nothing more than symbolic writings. At first sight, these hieroglyphics seem uncouth, meaningless, dark, and obscure. To study them, the first step you must take is to become familiar with their appearance. Then you may hope to become acquainted with the key to their meaning. Ultimately, when you find that key you will find these hieroglyphics to be full of interesting matter. It is much the same with the book of Revelation. It is a book of sacred hieroglyphics. Its very style is one to which our matter-of-fact northern mind is utterly unaccustomed. Its visions seem doubly strange to us, strange because we are not familiar with such a mode of conveying our ideas, but stranger still because in many cases we have no clue as to their meaning. Our first step must be to read and study them often, so we become familiar with their outward garb, with the style of composition in which they are clothed. If we study in a prayerful spirit, we may hope that the meaning of their inward contents will gradually be made plainer to our minds. One thing we need to remember and fix in our minds when reading the visions of the Apocalypse is that whether we understand little or much, every vision in the book, Has a real, definite meaning. The time is short. We are quickly moving toward a day when every page will be unfolded and unsealed. Every knot will be untied. Every hard question will be answered. Then will we see that the Book of Revelation, like every other part of the inspired volume, was all very good. Then we will find that the blessing pronounced on its students was not given in vain and that those readers whom God blesses are blessed indeed. The arguments commonly used to deter men from studying the book of Revelation. There have always been good men who have belittled the study of Revelation as unprofitable. They have spoken of it as a book too dark and mysterious for use. They have told men to respect it as inspired, but not to touch it. Reverence it at a distance, as part of the Bible, but do not come near it or handle its contents. To this prejudice we probably owe the unfortunate omission of the book from the daily calendar of lessons in the liturgy of the Church of England. It is regrettable that in the last arrangement of that calendar the apocryphal story of Bell and the dragon was thrust in and the revelation of John the Divine was shut out. Room was made for an entirely uninspired composition but no place was found for a book to the reading of which a special blessing is promised. Truly we may say in this case, great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Job thirty two nine. When you see that such prejudices have existed against the study of the book of Revelation among good men, you won't be surprised that the children of the world have gone further. Men, more witty than wise, have launched sharp sayings, jests, and jibes at its students. They have not been ashamed to find a target for witticism in its solemn and mysterious visions. Even a man like Scaliger declared that one of Calvin's wisest acts was his abstaining from writing a commentary on the book. Dr. South, a clever writer, though an unsound theologian, said that the study of Revelation either found a man mad or made him so. But is there any value in the objections commonly made to the study of Revelation? Let us weigh them in the balances. To my own mind, they appear neither as serious nor as unanswerable as is commonly supposed. One class of objectors dislikes the book because it seems to point to a coming state in the world which to their minds is monstrous, incredible, and improbable. That God should send plagues and judgments upon the nations of the earth because of their sins against Him, that the kings of the earth and the great men and the captains and the rich and the mighty and the bound and the free should really flee to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb, That the kingdoms of this world should really become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, that the saints of the Lord Jesus should forever reign upon the earth and everything that defiles will be cast out, all this is to their minds almost absurd. It is contrary to common sense, they tell us. It's a mark of a weak mind to believe it. It's extravagance, it's raving, it is enthusiasm. It's going back to the ranting of fifth monarchy men in the Commonwealth. It cannot be. We cannot show them the details of the way in which all these things will come to pass. They won't believe them. A book from which we draw such strange fanatical opinions can never be a profitable one to study. I boldly answer these objectors. They would do well to remember that the great and important events yet to come, to which revelation points, Are no more unimaginable than many which have already taken place in the world. The destruction of the Old World by the Flood, the wasting of Babylon, Nineveh, Tyre, and Egypt, the scattering of the Jews, and their perpetual preservation, notwithstanding, as a separate people, all these were things utterly improbable at the time when they were prophesied. But we know that they all came to pass. And as it has been in days gone by, so it will be in days to come. Men, in their pride, forget that in the eyes of an eternal God, the movements of the nations of the earth are as the struggles of a few short-lived insects. In just a little time, despotic and constitutional governments, liberal and conservative parties, all will be swept away. God has said it, and with Him nothing is impossible. As to the manner in which the great events predicted in Revelation will be brought about, we do not pretend to explain it. There are many things which we accept as facts, but find it impossible to explain. We believe in the creation of all things out of nothing. We believe the fact of the Incarnation. But who would dare to offer an explanation of any of these great mysteries? We have a right to regard unfulfilled prophecy in the same light. We believe the facts of the prophecies without knowing the mode of their fulfilment. I leave this first class of objectors here. I fear, in too many cases, that the secret spring of their arguments is the natural heart's dislike of spiritual things. The heart not taught by the Holy Spirit rebels against the idea of severe judgments against sin, a kingdom of Christ, and a reign of the saints. Why? The plain truth is, that it is not so much the book of Revelation that such a heart objects to, as it is the whole gospel of Christ and all the counsel of God. Another class of objectors must next be noticed. These objectors deprecate the study of Revelation because of the wide differences which prevail in the interpretation of its contents and the notorious mistakes interpreters have made. I don't for a moment pretend to deny the existence of these differences and mistakes. Some good men confidently tell us that the whole book is entirely unfulfilled. They demand an accomplishment of its visions so clear and unmistakable that there is no room left for doubt. Other good men assure us, with no less confidence, that the whole book is fulfilled, with the exception of a small portion at the end. A third school of expositors maintains that Revelation is partly fulfilled and partly unfulfilled. As to the details of the book, the meaning and application of the several visions it contains, and the fulfillment of times and seasons, I would run out of time to recount the various interpretations that have been put forth and the errors that have been committed. What can we say to these things? What can the advocate for apocalyptic study reply to these undeniable facts? My answer is that the variations and mistakes in the views of interpreters are no argument against the study of the book itself. Because others have missed the road in searching for truth, you and I are not to give up the search altogether and sit down in contented ignorance. Who has not heard of the outrageous and contradictory theories which astronomers, geologists, and physicians have occasionally proposed in their respective sciences? Yet who would think of giving up astronomy, geology, or medicine in despair because of the conflicting tenets and acknowledged mistakes of their professors? Luther and Svingley differed widely about the Lord's Supper. Cranmer and Hooper differed widely about vestments. Wesley and Toplady differed widely on predestination. Yet no one in his right mind would think of giving up the study of the Christian system because these good men could not agree. Further, the very mistakes and differences of apocalyptic interpreters are not without their use. They have cleared the field in many directions and shown us what the book of Revelation does not mean. In many cases, expositors have shown the weakness of other men's interpretations, even if they have not succeeded in establishing their own. To know what an unfulfilled scriptural prediction does not mean is one step towards knowing what it does mean. When Napoleon, on a dark evening, was overtaken by the rising tide on the sandy shore of the Red Sea, he is said to have ordered his attendants to disperse and ride in different directions, and charged each one to report as he rode whether the water grew shallower or deeper. There was great wisdom in that order. Each man's report was useful. The report of him who found the water deepening was in its way as useful as the report of the finder of the right path. It is much the same with the widely varying expositions of Revelation. It is evident that many of them must be wrong, but all in their way have done good. They have all contributed some spark of light. I would also answer that the differences of apocalyptic interpretations, great as they undoubtedly are, often magnified and absurdly exaggerated. The common points of agreement among expositors are more in number and greater in importance than commonly supposed. Whether the seals, trumpets, and files are fulfilled or not, all students of Revelation agree that it predicts judgments on the unconverted and unbelieving. Whether days mean literal days, as some say, or years, as others say, all are agreed that the time of the wicked's success is defined, limited, and fixed by the counsels of God. Whether the beast with horns like a lamb be the papal power or not, nearly all are agreed that Roman Catholic apostasy is foretold in the book and doomed. Whether Christ will come and reign visibly on earth or not, for a thousand or three hundred and sixty-five thousand years, all are agreed that He will come again with power and great glory, that the kingdoms of this world will sooner or later become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and that all believers should look and long for their Lord's return. I doubt the opponents of apocalyptic study have given this as much consideration as it deserves. I freely grant them, That the disagreement and inconsistencies of the paths drawn out by the expositors of the book are very many and very great. But I ask them to remember that the great ending point toward which all their lines lead is always one and the same. Oh, if people would remember that mighty ending point and realize the tremendous importance of the end and the breaking up of all things toward which they are racing. Then they would be more anxious to study any book which talks about matters like those contained in Revelation. Then they would be less willing to grab at any excuse to decline apocalyptic study. The only remaining objection to the study of Revelation which I will note is that which is taken from the mysterious character of a large portion of the book. It's impossible to deny that Revelation is full of hidden and difficult things. Some of its symbols and emblems the Spirit of God has thought good to interpret and explain. The seven stars, the seven candlesticks, the incense, the fine linen, the waters on which the woman sat, the woman herself, all these and a few more are explained, perhaps as an illustration of the kind of meaning which should be attached to the symbols of the book generally. But there remains a very large number of visions and emblems which the Spirit has not thought fit to interpret. These symbols are unquestionably dark and mysterious. Even after all the attempts of commentators, both ancient and modern, preterist and futurist, there are still many visions and symbols of revelation which we do not understand. Elaborate and educated expositions of them have been offered but they have not been demonstrated and explained satisfactorily enough to demand that we agree with them. If truth be told, we must admit that all the expositions of some parts of Revelation are nothing better than ingenious conjectures. We admire them as we read. We are not prepared to say that they are not true or to furnish a reason for refusing our assent, but they fail to carry conviction with them we somehow feel the target has not been hit, the lock has not been sprung, the whole truth has not yet been discovered. But I appeal to common sense and a sense of fairness, and I ask them whether they have a right to expect that such a book as the book of Revelation can in its very nature be anything but dark and mysterious. Here is a prophetic book that spans the mighty gulf between the end of the first century and the day of judgment a book which was given to show God's dealings with the church and the world during a space of nearly two thousand years. It is a book that points to the rise and fall of empires and kingdoms with all the attendant wars and tumults over a third part of the habitable globe, and a book that, above all, does not tell its story in simple, plain, matter-of-fact narration, but clothes it in majestic visions, symbols, emblems, figures, and similitudes. Here we are reading this book during a lifetime of seventy years at most, with all the cares and anxieties of this world pressing upon us, with our understanding corrupted by the fall, and with a heart that is naturally earthly and sensual, and even after conversion is weak and deceitful. We know little of ourselves, know little of contemporary history, and find constantly how hard it is to discover the real truth about events happening in our own day. Is it likely, then, is it probable, that we would find the book of Revelation any less mysterious and hard to understand? Can anyone doubt the answer? The plain truth is that we are like children watching some mighty building in the process of construction. They see a thousand operations, which they are utterly unable to comprehend or explain. They see scaffolding and stones, iron and brick, mortar and timber, and rubbish. They hear noise and hammering and cutting and chipping. It seems to their eyes a vast scene of hopeless confusion. And yet, to the eye of the architect, all is order, system, and progress. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what is going on. It is much the same with us trying to pass judgment on the application of many of the apocalyptic visions. We are like those who stand on the outward surface of a sphere. The range of our mental vision is exceedingly limited. We know so little and see so little beyond our own circle. The very pages of history, Are so often full of inaccuracies and lies that we are really very poor judges of the question as to whether visions have been fulfilled or not. More light, I believe, may be coming before the end. Many of the mysteries may be unfolded and unsealed. But as to any certainty about the meaning of all parts of the apocalypse, when I see how little certainty there is about anything just one thousand miles from us in distance, or one hundred years in time, I admit I do not look for it until the Lord comes. Let me turn for a moment to those who secretly wonder why the book of Revelation was not written more plainly, and why things of such vast interest to the church have been purposely clothed in the mysterious garb of symbol, allegory, and vision. I might easily remind such persons of Bishop Sherlock's remark on this very point. To inquire why the ancient prophecies are not clearer is like inquiring why God has not given us more reason or made us as wise as the angels. But I will go further and use an argument that has often proved satisfactory to my own mind and silenced the speculative questionings of a curious spirit. I ask, can you not see wisdom and mercy in the darkness which it has pleased God to throw around the prophetic history of His church? You wonder in your own heart why the things to come were not more clearly revealed. But consider for a moment how fearfully deadening and depressing it would have been to the early Christians if they had been able to see clearly the long ages of darkness and corruption which were to elapse before the Lord returned. Reflect for a moment on how much unhappiness early church believers were spared by not knowing for certain the events which were to take place. If humble saints in the days of imperial persecution could have dreamed of the eighteen weary centuries during which the saints had to wait for their Lord from heaven, they might have sat down in outright despair. If Polycarp had foreseen the present state of Asia Minor, or Ignatius, that of Syria, or Chrysostom, that of Constantinople, or Irenaeus, that of France, or Athanasius, that of Egypt, or Augustine, that of Africa, their hands might well have trembled and their knees given out. Count the dark and painful pages, of which there are so many in the annals of church history list all the heresies, false doctrines, and apostasies of which there has been such a vigorous growth, Arianism and Gnosticism and Romanism and their related errors. Think about the centuries of ignorance and superstition before the Reformation, and of coldness and formality since Luther's generation passed away. Count the crimes which have been perpetrated in the name of Christianity. The massacres, the burnings, the persecutions within the church, and don't forget the Waldensians, the Albigenses, the Spanish Inquisition, the slaughter of the Huguenots, and the fires of Smithfield. Do all this faithfully, and I think you will come to the conclusion that it was wise mercy which drew so thick a veil over things to come. Wise mercy showed the early Christians a light in the distance. But did not tell them how far away it was. Wise Mercy pointed out the far-off harbor lights, but not the miles of stormy sea between. Wise Mercy revealed enough to make them work and hope and wait, but Wise Mercy did not tell all that was still to be fulfilled before the end. Do we tell our little children, in their early years, Every trial, pain, and misery that they may have to go through before they die? Do we fill their tender ears with the particulars of every bodily disease they may have to endure, and every struggle for success in life in which they may have to engage? Do we distress their young souls by describing every bereavement they may have to endure, or the ugliness and distortion on every deathbed they may have to watch? We do not do it because they could not understand our meaning and could not bear the thought of it if they did. In the same way, it seems to me, the Lord Jesus deals with His people in the apocalyptic vision. He keeps back the full revelation of all they must go through until the time when He sees they can bear it. He considers our frame. He teaches and reveals as we are able to bear. The most powerful argument in reply to those who object to the study of Revelation is the simple promise of the Word of God. The predictions of Revelation may seem to many improbable and absurd. The differences and mistakes of interpreters may fill others with disgust and dislike of the very name of apocalyptic study. The acknowledged mysteriousness and confessed difficulties of the book may incline many to shrink from reading it. But there the book stands, part of those Scriptures which are all given by inspiration and all profitable. And there, at the beginning of the book, stands a promise and an encouragement to the reader and hearer. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear. These words, no doubt, were spoken in anticipation of the objections that people would raise against the study of the book. Give these words their full weight. Fall back on them when all other arguments fail. They are a reserve which will never yield, never give way. God has said it and will make it good. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Useful Lessons That The Book of Revelation Teaches This is an important point, and I want you to establish it in your mind. The book of Revelation is an eminently profitable book for every reader of the Bible to study. It is a fountain to which the poorest and most unlearned will never go in vain. There are many blessed and comforting truths scattered up and down all over the book of Revelation which are intelligible to the simplest comprehension, yet also full of food for the most spiritual mind. God has mercifully ordered the composition of the book so that there is hardly a chapter from which you may not draw some striking and edifying thought. You may not be skilled in interpreting visions. You may have no idea of the meaning of seals, or trumpets, or files, of the two witnesses, of the woman fleeing into the wilderness, or of the first or second beast. But if you persevere in humble prayer and study of the whole book, you will find in almost every page verses which will richly repay your pains. They will shine out on you like stars in the dark vault of heaven in a moonless night. They will refresh you like an oasis in the wilderness, and make it impossible for you to say, All is barren, there is nothing here. As you walk by the deep waters of a mysterious book, they will sparkle like precious stones on the shore and make you feel that your journey in search of treasure is not in vain. Let me select a few examples to show what I mean. There is much about the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation. There are names and titles and expressions about Him there that we find nowhere else. There is new light thrown on His offices, His power, and His care for His people. Surely this alone is no small matter. To know Jesus is life eternal. To abide in Jesus is to be fruitful. If we are indeed born of the Spirit, we can never hear too much about our Savior, our Good Shepherd, our High Priest, and our Great Physician. If our hearts are right in the sight of God, we can never hear too much about our King. Like snow in summer, and good news from a far country, so are any fresh tidings about Christ. There is much about the desperate corruption of human nature in Revelation. There is evidence on this subject in the Epistles to the Seven Churches, and the repeated accounts of the incorrigibleness and unrepentance of the nations of the earth under judgment, which we will all do well to take to heart. We need to know well our own sinfulness and weakness. The spring of all humility, thankfulness, grateful love for Christ, and a close walk with God is a real, thorough, scriptural knowledge of the wickedness of our own hearts. None will ever build high who does not begin low. The soul that loves much is the soul that feels its debt is great and that much has been forgiven. There is much about hell in Revelation. There are many terrifying expressions which show its reality, its misery, its eternity, its certainty. How important it is to have clear views on this serious subject today! There is a tendency in some quarters to shrink from asserting the eternity of punishment. That miserable heresy, universalism, seems to be flooding in upon us. Amiable and well meaning enthusiasts are speaking smooth things about the love of God being lower than hell, and the mercy of God excluding the exercise of all his other attributes of justice and holiness. Tender hearted women and intellectual men are grabbing at the theory that after all there is hope in the far distance for everybody and that Satan's old assertion deserves credit, Ye shall not surely die. Oh, beware of this delusion! Do not think you are wiser than the Scriptures. Believe me, it is a profound thing to believe in the reality of hell. Study the apocalyptic visions well, and you will find it hard to disbelieve it. There is much about heaven in Revelation, I speak of heaven in the common acceptance of the Word, the future home of the saints and people of God. And I say that no book in God's Word tells us so much about heaven as the apocalypse, and just this should be enough to make us most thankful. What believer in the Lord Jesus does not frequently think on the world to come and the resurrection state? Who that has lost a dear believing friend or relative does not meditate on the life of glory and the place of meeting? Who among the people of God does not frequently imagine that unknown and unvisited home, and strive to picture in his mind's eye what it is like there, and how will we spend our time? It is mysterious, no doubt, but nowhere is the veil lifted so much as it is in the book of Revelation. There is much about The Prospects of the Church of Christ in Revelation When I speak of the church, I mean the church of the elect, the living body of Christ, whose members are all holy. The pages of the Apocalypse show plainly that the triumphs, the rest, the ease, and the peace of that church are not in this world. Its members must prepare themselves for battles and fighting, trials and persecutions, crosses and afflictions, they must be content to be a little flock, a poor and despised people, until the advent of Christ. Their good things have not yet come. It would be good if believers would learn from Revelation to moderate their expectations from missions, schools, and all other ecclesiastical machinery. Then we would not hear so often of disappointment and despondency and depression among true Christians, especially among ministers. We live in the time when God is taking out a people for himself. These are the days of election, but not of universal conversion. We are still in the wilderness. The bridegroom is not yet with us. The days of absence and mourning and separation are not yet past and gone. There is much in Revelation to show the folly of depending entirely on the powers of this world for the advancement of true religion. Many parts of the book show that believers should not look to kings princes rich men or great men for the bringing in and support of the kingdom of Christ the times are not yet come when kings will literally be the nursing fathers isaiah 49:23 of the churches it is striking to observe how often the apocalypse speaks of them as the enemies of god's cause not the friends we need this lesson here in england With a settled conviction that the principle of an established church is scriptural and sound, I still feel we need reminding that alliance with the powers that be has its disadvantages as well as its advantages to the visible church of Christ. It is apt to engender laziness, apathy, and formality among professing Christians. I firmly believe that the Church of England would have exerted itself more and done more for the world If its members had been more familiar with the book of Revelation, and learned from it to expect little from the state, there is much in Revelation to show the painful childishness of the vast majority of true Christians all over the world. Here we are, the greater part of us, scrambling and wrangling about the merest trifles, contending about forms and ceremonies and outward matters of man's invention as if they were the essentials of Christianity. And talking of order and precedent and custom and routine, while millions of heathen are perishing for lack of knowledge, and myriads of our countrymen are dying as ignorant as the heathen around our own doors. And all this time, the eternal purposes of God are rolling on to fulfilment. The kingdoms of this world are on the brink of dissolution, the day of judgment is at hand, and an hour draws near when episcopacy, Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, state churches, and non-state churches will be swept clean out of the way, and nothing but grace, faith, and heart holiness will abide and stand the fire. Never do I read the Apocalypse without feeling the excessive littleness of Christians. We are like children busy with our little houses of sand at low water by the seaside. The tide is rising, and our houses will soon be gone. We will be fortunate if we escape with our lives. And last, there is much in Revelation to show the safety of all true believers in Christ, whatever may come upon the world. As awful as the woes are of which the Apocalypse speaks, there is not a syllable to show that a hair will fall from the head of any one of God's children. Hidden like Noah in the ark, plucked like Lot from the fiery judgment, withdrawn like Elijah from the reach of their enemies, rescued like Rahab from the ruin all around. Believers at least may read Revelation without being afraid. The book that looks dark and threatening to the world speaks no terrors to them. Like the wondrous pillar of cloud at Beheroth, Exodus 14.2, it may fill the mind of an ungodly man with gloom, but like the same cloud, it will give light by night to the people of God. I have mentioned eight things that are stated plainly and unmistakably in the book of Revelation. There is no mystery about them. They require no deep learning to understand. A humble mind and a prayerful heart are all that are needed to discover them. The offices of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the corruption of man, the reality of hell, the nature of heaven, the prospects of the Church, the folly of trusting in princes, the childishness of God's people, the safety of believers in the day of wrath. These are the kinds of subjects we need to be familiar with and know very well. These are the plain lessons that Revelation, even with all its many difficulties, will unfold. If these things are written deeply on our minds, our reading of the apocalypse will be blessed indeed. These are also the kinds of things that Satan works hard to keep us from. That old enemy tries to fill our minds with prejudice against apocalyptic study. He will suggest the evil thought, It is all mysterious, it is all too deep, we need not read it. Let us resist him in this matter. Let us cling to Revelation more closely every year. Let us never doubt that it is a profitable study for our souls. I will conclude now with three practical remarks. First, let us thank God that the things needful to salvation are all clear, plain, and devoid of mystery to those with a humble mind. Whatever difficulties there may be in the visions of the Apocalypse, Even the most unlearned reader of the Bible will never miss the way to heaven if he seeks to find it in a childlike and prayerful spirit. The guilt, corruption, and weakness of man is not a hidden thing like a seal, a trumpet, or a file. Christ's power and willingness to save and justification by faith in Him are not a dark thing like the number 666, The absolute necessity of a new birth and a thorough change of heart is not an uncertainty like the meaning of the two witnesses. The impossibility of salvation without fitness for heaven is not a mystery like the interpretation of the vision of the four living creatures. But remember, while you thank God for this clear teaching in the things essential to salvation, that this very clearness increases your personal responsibility even though there is an open door set in front of you. You need to be careful to enter it and be saved. Listen, everyone, and understand. I give you a plain warning this day. Do not forget it. You may reach heaven without knowing much about the deep things of the apocalypse, but you will never get there without the saving knowledge of Christ and a new heart. You must be born again. You must renounce your own righteousness and acknowledge yourself a sinner. You must wash in the fountain of Christ's blood. You must be clothed in the garment of Christ's righteousness. You must take up the cross of Christ and follow him. These are the things absolutely necessary. These are the things without which no man, learned or unlearned, high or low, can ever be saved. Don't rest until you know these things by experience. Without them, you may know the whole list of apocalyptic commentaries and be familiar with all that Meade, Brightman, Cressner, Dalboots, Durham, Cunningham, Woodhouse, Eliot, Alford, and Garrett have written on the subject, and yet rise at the last day a lost soul. Knowing much intellectually, like the devils, but, like the devils, be ruined forever. Let me also tell all students of the book of Revelation to beware of dogmatism and overconfidence when expressing and maintaining your views of the meaning of its more mysterious portions. Nothing has brought more discredit on the study of prophecy than the excessive rashness and overbearing confidence with which many of its advocates have promoted their own interpretations and impugned the expositions of others. Too many have written and talked as if they had a special revelation from heaven, and as if it were impossible for anyone else to have any common sense if they didn't see it in the same way. Let us all watch our hearts and be on our guard against this spirit. Dogmatism is a great trap that Satan lays in our way when he cannot prevent us from studying the Apocalypse. Let us not fall into it. Instead, Let us pray for a spirit of modesty and humility when offering our interpretations of symbolic prophecy. Let us allow that we may possibly be wrong, and that others may possibly be right. Believe me, we all need this caution. We are prone to be most positive when we have least warrant for our assertions simply because our pride whispers that our credibility is at stake and since we made our statements mainly on the authority of our own judgment, we are especially bound to defend them. Happy is that student of prophecy who is willing to confess that there are many things about which he is still ignorant. Happier still, but more uncommon, is the one who is able to use those three hardest words in the English language, I was mistaken. Finally, let all believers take comfort in the thought that the end to which all things are coming is clear, plain, and unmistakable. There may still be judgments in store for the world that we know nothing about. There may be distress of nations with perplexity, Luke 21.25, far exceeding anything we have yet heard of, read, or seen. There may be more grievous wars and famines and pestilences and persecution still to come, but the end is sure. In a little while he that will come will come and will not tarry. The kings of the earth may struggle and contend for their own worldly interests, but sooner or later the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. There will be an eternal peace he will come and take possession, whose right it is. Ezekiel 21.27. The dominion and power will be given to the saints of the Most High, and of the increase of their peace there will be no end. Oh, remember this! To gain our souls we must endure. In every trying time do as Luther did. Repeat the forty-sixth psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with a the swelling thereof. Selah! There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow, and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah.